Welcome to the Gifted Life Podcast, where we have conversations about organ, tissue, eye donation, and transplantation. You can always find us, guys, at thegiftedlife.org. I'm Lori Steele. I'm Joey Boudreaux. I'm Sarah Blakemore. Coming up on this episode of the Gifted Life, hope. Hope. And how one organization is offering hope and support through connecting pediatric transplant caregivers. And we're going to talk about how to fight loneliness by using wisdom. All right, you guys, hang tight. Here we go. On the Gifted Life podcast, we are excited to introduce you to our two new friends, Joseph Hillenberg. Hey, Joseph. Hi. And Melissa McQueen. How are you? Good. Thank you. How are you? Good. We are great. We are smiling. We have lots to learn from you guys. Um, we both know that you guys are, are transplant families um, in separate states, and so we're excited to hear your stories. And then you started on a new venture to help other caregivers of pediatric transplant recipients, and we just think that's all incredible. Uh, but on the podcast, we like to, to dig a little further to talk about your particular journeys and how you get there. Um, so, uh, Melissa, I don't know if you want to uh, kick us off and, and tell us uh, um, about your son the heart transplant and your journey? Certainly, I'd be happy to start off. Um, Our journey kind of started in 2008 when we were expecting our third child, Dylan. Um, He was supposed to be um, perfect and normal, and uh, we had a a great pregnancy. Uh, The day he was born, he um, came out in a dramatic fashion. (laughs) We discovered (laughs) that he was born with cardiomyopathy. He had an enlarged heart. And he was immediately life flighted over to Phoenix Children's Hospital. Um, my husband followed him there, and I came as soon as I can could afterwards. Um, he was on a ventilator for about a month, and uh, they wanted to transplant him right away, but were afraid that he would uh, not make it in the flight because there was no transplant center in our area at the time. So, um, but they were able to get him a little bit better on meds. And so we went home on medical therapies after uh, a while. And then we did this kind of shuffle in and out of the hospital whenever he would get worse and better and worse and better. And uh, finally, at about six months, they're like, you, you got to go. It's time for him to be listed. So I had done enough research by that time. I, I went to Children's Medical Center in Dallas and they did a transplant evaluation and welcomed us into their family there. Um, Two months later, on January 13th, he got his hero heart, and um, we were just so grateful. Um, He was actually planned to get the Berlin heart the day that we got the call, but we got the call instead. So we were just grateful that he had that second chance at life, and that's kind of what kicked off my journey. Wow. Okay. I'm, I'm, as a mom following your story and whoa, that's a lot to take in, <laughs> a, lot, a lot to take yeah. in. Um, but I like how you use your story to help others. Um, Joseph, you're doing the same. Uh, where are you, Joseph? And tell us your story. So I'm in um, suburban Chicago, basically the Western suburbs, uh, Naperville. And uh, um, our story is very similar to, to Melissa's. And one of the things you learn in, in pediatric transplant especially is that really very few stories are the same but our story is very similar uh same diagnosis um we have two older kids that uh, were quote unquote healthy and i use quotes there because you know what kid is uh normal and healthy there's always something um but relative to 
uh, dilated cardiomyopathy and uh, needing a transplant, everything is, <laughs> everybody else is in, um, in pretty good st uh, stead. Um, so um, he was, Ben was uh, kind of a normal pregnancy um, uh, and we were, we had expectations that he would not have any major complications. The first month went pretty well. Um, he was a little lethargic and that was should have been an early symptom that we know, should have noticed, but we didn't pick up on it because we didn't know what to look for. Um, he just seemed sleepy, right? And so um, then it is uh, um, about one month uh, mark, he um, uh, started to deteriorate pretty rapidly within the course of uh, uh, one day. And um, my wife took him in for a sick visit at our pediatrician, the pediatrician, um, took uh, a few looks at him and noticed everything was off and fortunately punted right away to the local emergency room in Naperville. And uh, they, the, the emergency room then escalated pretty quickly too after having done an echocardiogram, noticed his heart was about twice the size or maybe 50% larger than normal. I forget exactly mm -hmm. how much. Mm -hmm. um, the, his, liver, his liver was also larger and he was in uh, uh, a cardiogenic shock. And so uh, he was also transplanted by a uh, trans ported by helicopter, I'm sorry, to um, what was, it, it was then uh, Children's Memorial Hospital, um, it's now Lurie Children's Hospital, um, and um, because for the same reason, he wouldn't probably have survived the flight. Um, not all um, heart kids or, or any kids of other organs um, deteriorate so quickly. Uh, it's not so, systematic shutdown is not so quick. Um, in the case of what we saw, it was uh, pretty noticeable. Um, and so then he was having, you know, we noticed because he was having stomach flu-like symptoms. And that's what kind of drove us in. So um, uh, Children's Memorial uh, got a handle on things pretty quickly um, within about, uh, within a few hours of uh, having him being uh, brought in, made inpatient. He was, uh, uh, it got him kind of under control. And that doesn't mean he was anything was resolved. It just means he was um, able to make it through a day. <laughs> and so then it became a, 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 it's a, each day was his own journey We uh, or his own battle. Um, we were just waiting for one day to the next to see what would happen. And uh, um, then the transplant team kind of broke to us gently the, the possibility of transplant. They probably knew where he was headed. Um, this is a very experienced team, very involved in the community. And uh, uh, but um, they've also seen parents who probably kind of mentally shut down. And that's a big part of what we at Transplant Families are trying to uh, help pay, uh, other parents with. But anyway, so uh, they then um, mentioned a couple days later that he uh, would be need to be uh, listed for transplant. And so after basically after three days, he was listed. Um, and this was over the holidays. So there's no lonelier place than mm. a pediatric ward during Christmas time. I'll mm. just say that right now yeah. uh, mm. for a lot of reasons. Um, so um, fortunately, um, we were we had been told to expect uh, a three to six month wait for a heart. Um, in our particular region, and this varies from region to region um, and city to city, um, but fortunately, uh, within 19, he was only on the list for 19 days and we received the offer. I was taking care of our, our two daughters and my wife was, uh, Stacy, um, who's also very active in the in the community, she was uh, with him, and um, I uh, she got the, the, our uh, cardiologist walked in, gave her the uh, word that we got the call, and she called me, and all of a sudden it was like a scramble to find out, figure out what to do with our kids. And I know 
I'm telling a little bit more than what Melissa told you, but her story has probably got a similar track. And so, uh, you know, we had basically made sure that for the next couple of days, somebody could watch the other two kids. And then, uh, um, which is a big challenge for uh, parents that are in this situation, even more so with COVID. Um, I just want to stress that COVID has made this a very interesting problem. But um, there we were trying to uh, find someone to, uh, to, to watch our kids and we that, that's its own struggle. Uh, so um, then we I had an interesting conversation with uh, my oldest daughter that morning um, that we that I told them what was happening. They were only three and four. They kind of kind of understood what was happening, but not quite. And they said, Daddy, where did the uh, where did the new heart come from? And I was like, let's eat breakfast. And uh, yeah. no one was ready to have that conversation with a three and four year old yet. And fortunately, the child life specialists at the uh, hospital are, had ways to break that to the siblings about how that worked. Um, uh, the books and other sorts of educational materials. So he had a, a pretty routine transplant. Not every transplant is routine. Uh, uh, kids do, I think, better than adults. That's I don't, that's not just anecdotal. If you look at the studies, it's pretty clear that because of their immune system and their ability to bounce back and all sorts of other things, um, they do really well. It's also crucial that kids get transplanted um, as early as possible when they're undergoing severe issues because of organ failure. And, and that's because they need that um, capacity to grow. And so having a healthy heart, a healthy liver, healthy kidneys will allow them to resume a normal life and do things like where my my son is uh he does taekwondo a couple times a week and melissa's son is a wrestler and i think is a state champion or something like that melissa something along those nice. lines he's fifth in yeah. state he was when he was wrestling oh. at state okay all right yeah so fit, so fifth in state close enough and so, uh, to, to, for them to lead a, a relatively normal life uh, and not have what they call what the docs call failure to thrive it's important for them to get those organs as quickly as possible um and so then his recovery, Ben's recovery was pretty uh, normal after that. He had physical therapy and occupational therapy after that. Um, and then uh, has pretty much morphed into the um, nine-year-old that had during, while I've been speaking to you, has come up to me asking for things and you haven't been able to hear it, but <laughs> at least he's being a nine-year-old. So yeah. Normal. Yeah. Yeah. So that's our, sto our story in a nutshell. That's amazing. It really is, uh, you know, but it has to be scary you know, hearing you, uh, Joseph, talk about it in, in such detail. And clearly you guys, you know, did receive a, a fair amount at least of support through it and and uh, and understanding. I'm curious, uh, Melissa, you know, I know he, he said you guys had a similar story in that. Uh, what did you know about transplant at the time that you were told, you know, that Dylan would need a transplant? And how scary was that? Oh, my gosh, I'm so glad you asked that question. Um it's quite a shock. So when I first, you know, walked in the room, you know, after he was, you know, on the vents and uh, I had the transplant coordinator walk in who, who's now a very close friend of the family and uh, it's like a punch to the gut. Uh, you know, you're in there, your child's sick, you've never been in any kind of situation like this before, most likely, and they come in and it's straight to transplant. It's not, we can do this this other surgery or we can do this other thing, it's straight to transplant. And you're like, whoa, um, how did we get here? So my knowledge to this was nil coming up to this point and I was scrambling. Um, like Joseph, we both have backgrounds in information technology and we have a, a, you know, a love of learning. So I immediately just delved into uh, learning as much as I possibly could about 
what was going on, his condition, what possible outcomes were, any kind of alternative treatments that were possibly out there. Um, and we finally, um, or after many um, months of research, came to the same conclusion and said, yep, this is, this is the only way, this is the best way for him. I want to add in, you know, those supports are so important. I know you had um, just asked about that as well. And um, I want to echo what um, Joseph said, you kind of need that community uh, at the time because you feel really isolated and alone. And uh, we had to travel for care. So we were in that unique per, um, situation where we went out of state, although I did have family um, in the Dallas area where we were. Um, my uh, stepmother came up from Corpus to um, come and help us because I had two other kids. I had three kids, three and under. Dylan was my youngest wow. uh, in the hospital. So crazy times, right? Mm -hmm. And I know Joseph's kids are the same span apart. So we often like to call um, my stepmom Esmeralda, our fairy stepmother. <laughs> she came up after retirement and she helped out with the two kids so that I could um, stay in the hospital all day and um, then come back to the other two kids at night. So you always kind of feel like you're failing someone. Um, but uh, as a psychologist there told us, and she was just, um, thank God for her. Um, she helped us so much. She said, you know, you're doing the best you can and your kids know you're there for them. And that's what really matters, that uh, you're there for your kids and the love is shown and that you have that community support. Lean on anyone that will let you lean on them. So, with that being said, um, you know, I hear a lot of there's so many feelings involved when a child becomes sick. There's guilt, there's stress, there's fear. So tell us about Transplant Families and how that was created and what is y'all's mission? Oh, certainly. Um, so Transplant Families kind of came out as a side project. Um, after Dylan was got his heart and his gift of life. Um, we came home after three months of being in the Dallas area. Um, I was supposed to go to back to work, but as many transplant parents know, that's quite impossible with the many clinic appointments and therapy visits. Um, Post-transplant isn't quite the cure. It's uh, just trading in one set of issues for another short term, and that often becomes all-consuming. And there's nothing to be shameful in that. It's just the way it is. So um, my hat's off to all the new moms and dads that are going through this right now and just know what, however you're keeping your head above water, it is okay. Um, Post-transplant, I started a website because that's what I know how to do is program and code. Mm -hmm. So, um, and after a while, that was kind of like my, my um, way of keeping my sanity amidst all this and kind of keeping that, um, that tie back to what I found normal, but um, it evolved. And I ended up going um, to a lot of support groups and talking to a lot of other parents. And uh, I found that they agreed and we said, hey, let's make this official. We made it a 501. And uh, we decided to make this a nonprofit that was out there that supported uh, families in our situation. We found that there were a lot of organizations that supported diagnosis that led to transplant, but nothing for post-transplant because we had that tag of being cured, which wasn't quite the case. So um, we kind of take a different approach. It's part support, but part celebration because we have so much to be thankful for. Um, our big push is often with education and advocacy. So we join a lot of quality improvement groups to help, you know, proof some of the documents they're sending out to new families and um, help out in their efforts as well. It's a really great community. If you ever had something your kid needed to be sick of and 
you know, be cured of, or so to speak, quote unquote, uh, transplants definitely the community to be in because um, it's such a welcoming, warm, grateful group. Um, so it, we came to this life by accident, but I'm glad we're here now. And I'm hoping that we can uh, welcome other parents into this um, our group and help them find answers in this very frightening time. Yeah, I would add to what Melissa said and uh, mentioned, you know, there's a lot of, there are a lot of transplant support groups out there. There's um, with almost 40,000 people per year that receive a transplant, or I should say 40,000 transplants occurring, which is not the same number. Um, uh, there, there has to be a lot, uh, rather large adult communities. And that's the key thing is that uh, um, there really is no uh, cohesive community for um, for parents. And uh, um, there might be some for individual organs that um, mostly, as Melissa said, address the pre-transplant journey, but not so much for post-transplant uh, support. Um, and there's some, some on the regional level, but uh, that's really what we're trying to uh, do is to address post-transplant across all organ types, including stem cell and uh, CAR-T and uh, uh, other sort of similar issues, whether you have, have uh, immunosuppressants uh, involved. Um, but in addition to, to what Melissa said about at, um, advocacy and support, we've actually sort of branched out a little bit um, into doing, um, into policymaking. We're privileged to have several people that are either the heads of some of these uh, more regional support groups and support organizations or um, are on the uh, um, board of OPTN UNOS, uh, like uh, I am currently on the board and Melissa is uh, uh, enter, entering it soon, um, or on other similar organizations. And that's, uh, and we just try to advocate for parents um, when an issue that pertains to pediatric transplant comes up, such as uh, pediatric priority in liver transplant or something like that, um, and just fight for our parents. And, and in addition, just make them aware of the issues. Um, that may be facing them in policy decisions that are uh, they really the pediatric uh, parent community has been shielded from in a sense and we want them to know what that these things that are happening in the uh, general transplant world affect them as well. And guys, um, to kind of follow what they're talking about, it's transplantfamilies.org and I love this. <clears throat> we are hoping that in these stories we can find strength, courage, and resolve. So sharing your stories, that connectivity. Um, what I guess what would you consider successes when it comes to the transplant families movement that you guys created and, and what are you hoping uh, to, to create with it? That's a great question. Um, we're hoping to give families peace, peace in knowledge, peace in connections, peace and support. I want to echo what um, Hannah Joseph said about, you know, our focus is pediatric. So it's definitely for the caregivers and parents of those, you know, our, our 18 and younger uh, transplant recipients. And um, we want a special place for them because it's a very different world that they grow up in. Um, kudos and hats off to the adult uh, support groups that are out there and that are absolutely wonderful. Um, but we found that there were um, some pieces that adults don't have to go through. They don't have to go to school and explain kind of their situation and um, say, hey, I need these accommodations because um, my kids are immune suppressed and um, they might not be able to sit next to someone 
um, who, you know, might have measles or chicken pox or anything like that, or they might need certain accommodations for their medications uh, or activities. Um, so we had kind of special situations that we hope to help parents with. And, you know, parent to parent um, groups are fantastic because we can all kind of share our experiences. It's been a very robust and supportive group. Um, and we've seen other local groups pop up and, you know, we love to support them too. Um, so if you're a local support group at a hospital and, and you wanna connect with us, we definitely welcome that as well because um, we like to, to share with you and hopefully you can share with us. Um, again, very supportive. It's amazing, you know, you said that Melissa, with the accommodating part, you know, we don't even think about that. And I can tell you, so I'm, I'm a clinician uh, and of course I, I work on the recovery side, but, but it's not something you think about on a, on a regular basis after, you know, you, you're, you're working with a child that, that uh, is immunocompromised and that you've got to watch, you know, who's with that child, who's, you know, the friends and all that. And those are things, you know, you, you say it and it kind of resonates because, you know, I, I wouldn't have normally thought, you know, well, you know, how much support is needed. Obviously, you need to understand, you know, what medicines that are, that uh, he's got to take or you've got to give on a certain regimen and you're getting some of that from the physician. But all of these extraneous things, you know, you just as a general public and I count myself in that, you know, in a way because I'm, I'm not on the transplant side. We just don't think about and it's really yeah. I think it's amazing that you guys uh, ha had the foresight to, to create this and and support so many people to build on that. Um, you know, it's it's so much information giving, but it's also it can be so isolating, I'm sure, to have a child who's sick and, you know, you you probably feel like you're alone in this world and to have that community and that connection. And it's probably brought so much light to people and there's so much caregiver fatigue that we know about. And I'm sure there's families who you speak with, who you can share in that with and reduce oh, guilt even. Certainly. <laughs> no, I agree. Yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, yeah, okay. these caregivers, they're exhausted. Yeah. And, you know, especially when you have um, babies like, uh, you know, Ben and Dylan that are, um, you know, this happens at birth, they miss all their milestones. So that's a whole other thing is coming into early intervention programs to make sure they keep up. Dylan never learns how to, to eat properly. You know, he was, they were afraid he would die if he um, nursed at all. So uh, we had to teach him how to eat all over again. It took three years on a G-tube. Those are the things that, you know, that aren't often talked mm -hmm. about, but that families silently suffer through. Mm -hmm. And Joseph, I know you wanted to make a point. I'll let you jump in too. Oh, oh no, I was just, well, I was just going to say that, uh, you know, especially with, uh, uh, as a community, um, we do that information sharing and it started off, um, this, there's actually a, 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 a Facebook group um, for pediatric heart transplant parents that was formed after both of our kids had their transplants and it's got 2,500 people in it, I think, something like that, a large number of parents. And it's, I think it's the largest um, pediatric transplant um, Facebook page out there. But, um, you know, we, we, we in conjunction with transplant families, the group has sort of um, been able, been a resource for, for each other during these trying times. And you know what I'm talking about, COVID. Mm -hmm. And so we share uh, strategies for, um, and frustrations with uh, uh, dealing with, how do we deal with uh, uh, going on public and uh, if we have to, and, and uh, dealing with masking situations or, or uh, 
other sorts of COVID precautions. Uh, and so we kind of are able to vent to each other and uh, it, it has sort of a sense of confidentiality. Um, and, and that's what that support is all about. Um, conversely, when COVID hit, you know, everybody was uh, talking about, well, you need to mask up, you need to hand wash, all those sorts of things. These are all second nature to a transplant parent. We already knew the drill. And that, and actually, so I've heard more than once from pediatric practitioners that they really weren't as worried about recipient parents and recipient families um, adjusting to the times because we already, it was our normal. Everybody else's new normal was our normal in that sense. Um, so uh, it, anyway. Yeah, I love working with our um, our volunteers and we have... Um, some parents of, of pediatric transplant recipients, and I said, we should just slap a PhD after your name because you guys know so much. But they do act as mentors to others who are joining our teams, and I just love to watch that because it's so easy and they're so comfortable talking to each other to know that there is support, there is knowledge, there is a friend who knows, uh, and that you guys have had the forethought to let me help others. I just think that's fantastic. Uh, so if you're listening out there, you need a friend, uh, you just want to ask a question that, uh, you know, we say, can, can I ask a stupid question? Uh, you know, this is a safe place to be able to, to do that. Now, earlier, you guys mentioned a kids conference, which was coming up, a pediatric transplant conference. It's virtual this year. It's on April 22nd. If you want more, all you have to do is go to transplantfamilies.org. Joseph and Melissa, thanks for doing this. Thanks for sharing it with us here on the podcast. And we hope to have you back uh, again. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you very much. Here on the Gifted Life podcast, we take a moment for mental health. I'm always looking forward to hearing what Sarah's got to talk about. What are we talking about today, Sarah? All right, guys. So today we're going to talk about loneliness, which a lot of, you know, families and people are experiencing right now in our country, but um, also how to fight it and how to combat it. And there was some recent research done that showed that people who show higher signs of wisdom. So let me be clear, not intelligence, but wisdom have less, um, show less signs and symptoms for loneliness. So we're gonna talk about kind of how to, how do we increase our wisdom? How do we make ourselves more wise? Um, which can be difficult because a lot of times wisdom comes from age and experience. Mm -hmm. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can't do it at all stages of our lives, work on how we view the world and broaden our, um, perspective. Mm -hmm. Ready to learn. Let's do this. Okay, so the first thing to increase your wisdom, and this will help you fight loneliness, is don't define yourself in one moment. What I mean by that is if you're feeling lonely, don't define yourself in that moment as I'm always lonely. I'm a lonely person chronically. Um, You're not. And those downtimes I know can feel like they last forever and it's never ending and you can feel hopeless but it doesn't define you and you can find little moments of connection that will make you feel less lonely. Mm -hmm. So that's the first one. Um, The next one is find ways to connect in small ways, whether that's shooting someone a text or listening to a podcast about people who are experiencing something similar to you. Um, We know that connection 
really is like the number one antidote cure for loneliness. That's what I was thinking. I noticed on social media, especially during the pandemic, uh, a lot more of my friends were um, like being creative mm-hmm. and then like put like, I did this. Do you want to know how I did it? And then they would do videos or uh, their magnificent plates of food that they had just baked or cooked um, and putting that out there. And I said, oh, that's different because you wouldn't expect that content from them. But it, I guess it was how they were coping. And I enjoyed the, you know, Yes. Differentness, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's so much content out there, like you're saying, that can just make you feel connected or, wow, that person's doing it. I want to try that, too. And then you feel less lonely. It just it it is what it is. Connection really just decreases your loneliness. So Mm -hmm. connect in small ways. You can you can even try the 1980s style of connection and make a phone call to someone. What? Mail a letter? I don't do that often these days. It's text or (laughs) Facebook or social media. But some of the little moms in our group said, um, you know, everything is technological these days. And so she said, I want to teach my kid how to mail someone a letter. And so we did like little pen pals during the pandemic. And Cam, like my little boy, was so excited to do that. And I was filled with joy watching that. And it was just like a little little act of kindness, a little something different. Little small acts of kindness, small ways to connect. Those little things where you are just engaged with Mm -hmm. something or someone else really, really help. And what it does is it, which is my next point, which is to look at the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. You aren't alone. Remind yourself. And that's how we increase our wisdom is when you look at the bigger picture of your life and your family and your friends and what your purpose is and who you connect with, you will feel less lonely. Um, So when you're in those dark moments of loneliness, when you feel hopeless, like you're never going to get out of it, connect to someone, look at yourself in the grand scheme of things, the big picture, find something that brings you joy and you will feel less lonely. Mm-hmm. I think it's always important, whatever, and we're talking about loneliness, but it's a lot of things, feelings that you might have that the bigger picture is always the better way to, to, to approach things. Mm-hmm. When you, Because in the moment, it's easy to, to say always, you know, or I That's never true. feel this way, or always, just because you're in that moment. And it's so important to, to just take a step back mm-hmm. and think about the bigger picture and, and, and you know, in this situation, how many connections that you have, how many connections that you can have today if you go ahead, like you said, put something on social media or connect with a friend. You know, it's always that that opportunity out there. It's just you have to open your eyes to it. Yeah, and I think, you know, for, like you're saying, when you are in those dark moments, it does feel like it's going to last forever. But that's why reaching out to somebody and and also remembering that when you're not in a dark moment, maybe telling someone, reminding them, hey, let's look at the big picture, the grand scheme of your life, how how many people you have that love you, you know, be that reminder for someone else because you might need that when it's your turn. Right. So let's just all look out for each other. And it's a lonely time right now, but we can also do better and we can increase our wisdom and our bigger perspective to reduce our loneliness. Strive to be a better human. Yes. I try every day. Try, try, try mm-hmm. again. <laughs> all right. Maybe you have a topic you'd like Sarah to cover. Email us info at thegiftedlife.org. In our question and answer segment today, Joe, I'm going to kick this over to you. Can transplanted organs grow with the person? Uh, Considering what we're talking about today, pediatric transplants, that sometimes comes up. And so um, just a little bit of clarity on that. Yes. So uh, that's actually a question that I've gotten often, Mm -hmm. you know, over my years at LOPA. And uh, and the answer is yes, uh, in, in most situations. You know, as we all know, 
We've talked about it before. Livers regenerate. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, we've also talked about splitting livers, and I'll kind of spread it out over the couple few organ types. But we've talked about splitting livers, and oftentimes a a small segment will go into a, a child or a small adult, and that grows actually within about six weeks or so to to the size that's needed. Uh, Which is fascinating, right? It's amazing, <laughs> Science. Right, right. So, and, and I said before, you know, God knew what he was doing with a bunch of Cajuns you know, and alcohol, <laughs> uh, understanding that we would have to regenerate. Um, so uh, so that's from, from the liver standpoint. The hearts uh, also grow back and the kidneys grow back a certain amount, but mainly adapt. Uh, is is how my surgeon friends uh, put it, We've, which is incredible. Like to right. think about it, like it has to. Well, but how does that work? Yeah. And and so in a previous uh, episode, we talked about uh, some time back. We talked about a pediatric uh, that we recover s- tiny kidneys from from like a ten pound baby, mm-hmm. double kidneys, and transplant them into an adult. We've done that from here. A guy from uh, California, UC Davis, was a kind of world renowned for doing it. He's, they're still doing it. So so my point is we're able to do that. And those little bitty kidneys are functioning in, in 60-year-old adults. Mm-hmm. So so they, they can adapt, you know, even though they don't grow c- completely to fit the same size as what the, the, a person's normal size would have been, they adapt as though uh, there's no difference. So wow. it's amazing, you know, what, what your body can, even though it's a transplanted organ, you know, and, and it's from someone else, gift from someone else, it, it'll still adapt and or change to exactly the size it needs to be. Uh, and function the way it needs to. And function to. it needs to be. So. Yeah. Incredible. If you have a question for us, why don't you give us a call at 504-648-3477. In every episode of The Gifted Life, we honor a hero. Today's hero, Gavin Shillette. And we learn about Gavin from his mother. April of 2015 changed our lives forever. My son, one of my twins, Gavin, was rushed to the hospital after an accident at home. After a week in the hospital where every life-saving measure was attempted, we had to say goodbye for now. He left behind a twin brother, a 16-year-old sister, and a three-year-old brother. He left behind countless family members, friends, and a community of people who adored him. My baby made a huge impact in his 13 years of life. He lived every day with such joy, passion, and humbling love. He is forever missed. Gavin was an organ and a tissue donor. He was 13 years old when he became a hero. His beautiful spirit and heart impacted so many while he shared this life on earth. And with his passing, he gave others the opportunity to share in the joy of living. As his mother, I pray his recipients have had the opportunity to enjoy a second chance with a little less pain in this life. I know my baby boy would have really loved to know he was able to spare others hurt or pain. At this time, we pause and say thank you to Gavin for the gift of life. And that will do it for the Gifted Life podcast, episode 159. Thanks for listening, guys. And remember, you can register as an organ, tissue, and eye donor anytime. Registerme.org. 
And thanks also to Joseph and Melissa for sharing their stories and for helping support so many families of pediatric transplants. To learn more, go to transplantfamilies.org. And remember, guys, the best place to find us, The Gifted Life, is on our website, thegiftedlife.org. You can listen there or anywhere you like to listen to your podcasts, whether it's Apple, Google, Spotify, or iHeartRadio. If you do listen on Apple, go ahead and give us a five-star rating so that others can find the podcast. And if you're on social media, go ahead and like our page on Facebook, The Gifted Life Podcast. And follow us on both Twitter and Instagram at Gifted Life Pod. Thanks for listening and hanging with us. Our goal uh, is to spread donation information. You're part of our team, and we appreciate you for doing that. Um, we hope that you go out and do something you wouldn't normally do to help us make life happen. Have a good one. This is a production of LOPA, or the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency. The Gifted Life is hosted by Lori Steele, Joey Boudreau, and Sarah Blakemore. Our executive producer is Kirsten Hines. Producer is Shalon Caraway. Intern is Rebecca Ranham. And we are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Covington, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez. <laughs>